morning I'm going to read our passage from Acts chapter 5, 1 through 16. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for himself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you've agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Let me pray one more time. Father, we thank you for this, your word. God, we thank you that you speak it to us. God, we pray that our ears would be open to hear it, that we would see you rightly, and that we would respond to your gracious love. We, we need this to be done, and it can only be done in the power of your Holy Spirit, to the praise of Jesus. Amen. Um, I, I've had, I've had a, a bit of a crazy uh, a week or so. Um, I went up to Pittsburgh, and my family all went to hang out with my um, sisters and my nephews uh, and my parents at the lake, and so I had to miss that. And I normally uh, rent a car to drive up to Pittsburgh because both of our vehicles are, are old. Well, both, both the vehicles that I drive are old. And um, Pittsburgh, not exactly known for their road quality. Uh, so I, I try to rent somebody else's car to let them shake that box of nuts and bolts down the road. Um, but uh, it was just expensive. And um, I was like, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be frugal here. I'm going to save some money. And I won't rent a car. And I'll, I'm almost sure I'll be fine. I'll be fine. Um, and eternal pessimist that I am, I felt the doom of those words in my own head. And Thursday night, less than 24 hours before I was supposed to leave and drive back home, my car overheated in the middle of Pittsburgh as I was trying to go meet a friend. And 
spend five hours waiting for AAA, and um, uh, I, I had it towed back near the school and, and, and went to plead with them in the morning, like, please, I just want to go home, please. And the guy was like, I just turned away 20 cars yesterday, and then I find your car here. I don't know. We'll do our best to get to it. All the while, my wife is suffering from this pain in her jaw. She had to get a crown that was hopefully going to fix that pain, and it didn't. And so she is not sleeping while taking care of our four kids by herself. Um, day after day, I'm getting texts from my parents who are like, your wife is suffering, and I'm like, I don't know what you want me to do. I'm trying to do what I can. Um, and so I get home, and the pain has just gotten worse and worse and worse, so that by last night, I'm watching her bury her face in our couch and just weeping because the pain is just unrelenting. She's getting a root canal at 1 o'clock um, tomorrow afternoon, and she is literally counting down the hours. And there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. Um, you know, Wes Height did his best to, to help us, and she's, she's m making it. But you, if you know my wife, my wife, pretty tough. Um, and she was saying that the pain was equal to childbirth, if not worse. Um, terrible to watch her. On top of that, um, the class I went to uh, all last week uh, was a class called Soul Care. And um, it wasn't particularly one I was interested in the topic, but it was in person and not on Zoom. And so I was like, this is the class for me. I cannot do another minute on Zoom after the past 15 months. I need to get away. I've had a long year. I need to go. I need, to, I need soul care. I don't know what I'm going to learn, but I need soul care. Um, and it was, God was incredibly invasive with me. Um, in lots of good ways, but I, I'm not somebody who cries a lot, contrary to present <laughs> evidence. Um, and I did a lot of that in front of people, which is deeply uncomfortable for me. There are, there are very few scenarios that I can imagine worse than that. And, um, and so I've just left... I was left very tender in a good way, just like you did good exercise and you're feeling, you're feeling what you've done. And here I am in Acts chapter 5. And this, this, is why, this is why it's good to just go straight through books of the Bible. Because you come to passages that you were just like, honestly, rather skip this one. Ananias and Sapphira, dropping dead. Let's go. In this particular moment of my life, I especially do not want to deal with this text in this passage. There, this text and many others in the Bible are waiting for you in moments of your own life. 
And so what I want to do is to not skip this. And to do this with you, do it in front of you, to help you feel like you can have some capability to not just deal with what texts like this are, are telling you, but you can actually enter in and under them and let them instruct you in their very strangeness and the discomfort that they provoke in you. It is, it is possible that you turn from the Old Testament to the New Testament and you say, I'm not going to read stories like the, the person being struck dead. I can leave those behind. And that is this kind of quiet assumption that something has happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament that, that God thank, thankfully has gotten saved. That Jesus came and converted him. And so now he's not like he was in the Old Testament anymore. But this story is just one of a f- several in the New Testament that shatters the illusion, the temptation to believe that God has ever changed his character. Because he hasn't. What Luke wants us to see, what the scriptures are going to tell us, is that God is always consistent in his character. Always. And he did not need to be converted from the Old Testament God to the New Testament God. That in fact, this is who he is. And if you listen closely and rightly, what I'd like you to consider is you don't have to be afraid of him. Now, it's tough maybe to believe that that could possibly be true and that I would use this text to help you believe that. But I want you to listen very carefully and to hear this news. Because the New Testament writers are uniform in saying that you don't have to be afraid of God. That when you've seen Jesus, you've actually seen exactly what the Father is like. And we know that, we believe that, because Jesus himself has said it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so the face of Jesus helps us understand the places of darkness and mystery within the scriptures themselves that feel intimidating and scary. You have to look through the face of Jesus and see what is going on here. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, their sin is that they lie. They, they value money. They, they've apparently loved money. And they have kept a portion of the sale. And Peter is explicit. That is not wrong. That is not the problem. They could have done that and just said it and not had any problems whatsoever. And in fact, there appears to be this moment that Sapphira can say exactly that. That she can come clean and say, we sold it for this much, we kept this much, that's what it was. But their sin is that they lie. Now, you can kind of assume the motivations of their lies. We don't know. But we know the story before this is that a man has done similar to them, except he has faithfully sold 
and then given all of the profit and laid at their feet. We know that this kind of behavior was happening in the, little, the, the early church, that people were bringing their possessions. And so it's entirely possible that Ananias and Sapphira are, are at odds within themselves by two competing desires. One, they want to be a part of this thing. They are convinced by what they hear about Jesus. They have seen his power. They see the attractiveness of this community, and they want to be a part of this community. And, and, they're maybe a little bit afraid of losing everything that they have. Or maybe they're a little bit afraid of losing a little piece of comfort. So they want to appear like they belong without being willing to pay the price for full belonging. And so they say, well, let's, let's do the best option. We'll keep some and we'll give the appearance that we've given everything. And what I want you to notice here is how normal that lie is. I would wager that every single person has lied like this. Not that you would outright completely misstate the truth, but that you shade it to just give everybody just a little better impression of who you are. It's so easy. It is normal behavior for us. It is, it is duplicitous, it is hypocrisy, it is a lie, but it is one that is so common currency for all of us that that is actually what unsettles us about this story. Because if you are honest, you might first say, I don't know that I'm selling any property and giving any of that money to the church, first of all. They're, the people who died in judgment, they're probably more generous than me. That's a little bit alarming. I can firstly acknowledge and admit that. The second thing that alarms me is that I have done this thing many times. In fact, I have to pay attention to make sure that I don't at any given moment because I so value and crave other people's perceptions of me that it's so easy to shade the truth to come out ahead. And they die. And I think that there are two different ways that you can respond to this. And I, I think that both of them are wrong. The first is you say, no. God is not like this. God would not do this. He did not do this. He does not do this. This is not God. And I, and I would say if you're going to listen to and submit to the teaching and authority of the scriptures, that is not an option. That in fact, God has acted like this many times in the scriptures. And you and I say that because we do not understand the gravity and the, and the terrible destructive power of sin. 
We see the, the ease by which we enter into Ananias and Sapphira's sin, and we think that means that this is not a big deal. And what you and I fail to understand and to appreciate is that God is deadly serious about the terrifying power of evil and sin, and he refuses to allow the voice of that serpent to own his whole creation. Because what sin is coming to do is not to give you and me momentary pleasure, but to wring every ounce of life out of your soul. And evil is coming not as an optional accessory in your life that you think you can manage, but evil is coming to consume, devour, and annihilate the creation. And any kind of participation and collaboration and conspiracy with sin, with evil, is deadly serious. So when the holy God pours out his wrath on sin, it is not a misunderstanding for you to see that and to think, you, that's pretty serious. What will happen to me? That is, in fact, a question you are meant to ask. And you are meant to ask, what space have I made in my life by habit, by, by volition, and by ignorance for that kind of evil which this God hates? So for you to say, no, this is not how God acts is to misunderstand the reality and the terror of evil. Now, there is another mistake that you can make where you can look at this story and many other stories like it, and you can come to believe that God is unpredictable, that God is like the drunken stepfather, that you're just not quite sure what he's going to do when he comes in at night. In one moment, you might see a perfectly nice and loving parent, but if the stars don't align at work, he might come in and kick the dog and kick you around. And so you better be perfect to make sure that he doesn't come and get you. Because even if you are, he still might. And you can take that experience or one like it and impose it on God and acknowledge the truth about yourself. I have often told lies like this. What might God do to me? And so you labor. You labor. I need to be perfect. I need to be right. Or else I don't know what this God is going to treat me like. 
And I think both of those things are a misunderstanding of the nature and the character of God. In theology, we talk about the fact that God is simple. I know, I know that may feel counterintuitive. God cannot be simple. I cannot understand him like 90% of the time. What we mean by that when we say that is that God does not have parts to him. I do. I have a body, mind, emotions, spirit. There are all these parts that compose me. And my emotional life is fragmented. I have different parts of who, my, uh, who I am. And, that, and when we look at God, we say he is infinite. He is impossible to fully grasp. But he is simple in his being. And he is only ever himself. Fully. There is no segmented portion of his personality, his character, or his being. He is just himself. And that is absolutely crucial when you read a story like Ananias and Sapphira because you need to understand that God is always, always the God who is angry and furious with sin at the same time that God is merciful and compassionate. You and I make decisions. At this moment, as a parent, for whatever conflict is going on, I need to pull the justice lever and, and leave the mercy lever. I need to bring justice down. I need to turn off some portion of what I'm feeling and experiencing. Or I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relieve the justice lever and I'm going to pull down the mercy lever. I'm going to have forgiveness for my children and not give them consequences. Those levers do not exist in God. There is no moment in which God ever says, I will not be just right now. And there is no moment where he ever says, I will not be merciful right now. You and I live in moments of experience with this infinite and simple God where that becomes difficult for us to understand and to experience. But it is vital that you and I understand that God fundamentally is not like us. So we need to listen to God tell us about himself so that we might see what he actually is like. In the book of Exodus, God tells you his name. He sends Moses to describe who he is to the people. And in this famous passage, God describes himself as merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, and quick to love. And he says that he will punish the wicked to the third and the fourth generation. But his mercy is to the thousands. At the same time, he is both of those things. 
And what you are meant to see is a glimpse into his character, that he is the God who will not let evil have its say forever and ever. But he will, in fact, bring judgment because evil is so terrifying and destructive. But what you are also meant to see is the defining characteristic of him is his mercy. That judgment might come to third or fourth generation, but mercy comes to thousands In his book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, which I've mentioned before, Dane Ortland, citing a Puritan theologian, Thomas Godwin, describes this as, the natural work of God is mercy, and his strange work is judgment. The natural work of God is mercy. In some sense, it is his default work, and his strange work is mercy, is, uh, is judgment. You need to hear this. What happens to Ananias and Sapphira absolutely is what could and would happen to every single one of us at every instance of sin. Our collaboration with evil is so destructive and so repulsive to what God wants to do in creation, the natural result of my sin and yours is this. It is death. Paul says, very clearly and famously, the wages of sin is death. The thing that you earn with death, where evil goes is death. The end result, the terminus point of every kind of sin is death. The moment that Ananias and Sapphira see that and experience it and the community does, we are meant to see these are the stakes all the time. And the moments you and I don't experience that is not the ordinary course of things that is mercy every instant where you and I are not struck dead by sin is mercy and this is what I would invite you to consider and what I would invite you to consider as you read difficult passages like this it is even in his judgment that God might hear, be merciful. We read this and we say, God is being very harsh. What I ask you to consider is something different. What if instead, God in his mercy sees the tortured soul of Ananias and Sapphira and know what this life of sin will do to them. He sees something about them and he brings judgment on them so they might be prevented from a future tangled up in this sin. Let me ask you this. We believe as Christians that all people will stand before God and be judged according to works. Everyone. That is not the entire basis of the judgment that Christians hope to, to stand. Our hope is ultimately to stand before God based upon the work of Christ. 
But even Christians, you and I, will stand before God to give an account of our life if judgment is rendered. And if judgment is according to the the activities and the, the fruitfulness or fruitlessness of your life, if God has terminated their ability to accumulate for themselves more reason for judgment, how then has he treated them but with mercy? Now you and I hear that We look at these stories and we say, that does not feel like mercy. (laughs) That does not feel quite like the kind of good news that I myself would prefer. What I would like is, you know, whatever. There's an angel. They say, you really shouldn't do that. They get better. They turn their life around. Happy ending story. We don't understand. I don't get how God can be this just and at the same time, be merciful. My response to that is, you are right. You don't understand. We don't understand. We stand before God as tiny little people whose comprehension is so small And we have no idea of the breadth of God's fierce anger at sin because it destroys and consumes what he loves and what he made. And we don't understand what judgment like that might look like. And we have no idea the awesome terrain of God's mercy for his people. We cannot imagine the depths, the breadths, the extent to which God has intended to set his mercy on people. The extent to which God has chosen to pursue people again and again in love. We often look at moments of pain and suffering and our only response is, I have no idea what God is doing. How could God be good and this has happened? And that's the truth. You don't understand. We get some small glimpse of it as parents, some tiny glimpse of it as parents when we, our children, collapse to the ground and throw a fit because we have not let them have fourths at dessert, even though we can tell them the last three times this happened, you puked and you were up all night. In their perspective, all they see is our no to them. And they have been violated. They have been victimized. And what I'm saying in my no is, I love you. I want so much good for you. And if you're a parent or you've watched parenting, you get that. You've seen it and you understand it. But let me tell you this. You and your child are closer together in understanding than you are to God. Your child's complete inability to understand is closer than my ability to comprehend God because of God's infinite vastness. But God has not left us only in mystery and darkness. He has instead made a way for us 
to have some dim understanding of both the depths of his anger at what would destroy us and the breadth of his mercy. When he planted the cross in the ground. In that moment, the disciples and everybody who was watching also did not understand. Did not understand how could this be the victory of God. In the darkness of their own soul, they wept that God had lost. And they were hopeless. And that very moment, while they were weeping and not understanding, God was accomplishing his greatest victory. And they could not recognize it. They could only recognize it after the resurrection. You have to read Acts chapter 5 in the rest of the Bible through the cross. Everything is through the cross. When you don't understand how God appears to act in ways that you do not understand or expect, your, your, your gaze first has to go back to the cross and say, if I was there, I would not have understood that either. And so as I stand before this passage and underneath this passage, and it is saying things that leave me scared and worried and to wonder, I have to first look at the cross and be reminded that I will often not understand and understand what God wants me to understand chiefly. The fullest expression of God's revelation is Jesus. That is who he is. Always and all the time. And his cross helps me to understand. The, the, the wrath, the anger of God is terrifying. And he has extended his arms over me in mercy again and again. And that is the undoing of these two mistakes that you can make with the scriptures. The cross undoes those things. You can't just put your finger over different texts and say, God wouldn't act like this. Of course he would act like this. This is the God of the crucified Jesus Christ. Of course God acts like this. He refuses to allow the presence and the power of evil in the world. He refuses to lose. He refuses to stand by and watch the evil done to you go unpunished. He refuses to look at you and to let you just play with vipers that would poison you and destroy you. He refuses. Of course, he refuses. And of course, you don't have to be afraid of him. Of course you don't. Because you can see Jesus very clearly. John in his epistle says it. Very succinctly, perfect love casts out fear. Now you don't have to be afraid of judgment anymore. That's what he says in 1 John chapter 4. 
We can't skip Acts chapter 5. Can't skip it. But I would invite you to listen to what it says. That your sin is more serious and deadly than you ever really, really understood. And the mercy of God that is available to you outstrips the judgment that you otherwise ought to be afraid of. That liars and frauds like us still might be recipients of God's mercy. When you get confused and unsure, look at the cross, look at Jesus, and let him hold you. Let him hold you when you can barely hold on until the very end when his, when his words will be the last ones, that it really is finished and the whole creation and you are free. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for these words, your scriptures. God, we, we, we acknowledge that we want to dictate terms with you. We want to tell you how things should go, that this is hard, it should be easier, it should look like this. We're, we sin, God, by demanding things of you. And we're sorry. Father, I pray that this passage, all of your scriptures will tell us the truth about yourself and about us, that we are in need of your mercy. God, I pray that by your spirit we'd respond and we'd come receive it. Jesus, we thank you that you help us to see. And we thank you that you extend to us this mercy forever and ever. Amen.